This is Sit Rep on BFBS. Refugees breach security at RAF Akrotiri and land in the Cyprus sovereign base area. The Chinese bankroll the UK's new nuclear power station, but what about their hackers? The UN is 70 on Saturday, but do we expect too much from it? NATO's biggest exercise in 10 years takes to land sea and air, but who's the enemy? And the Paras get their Pegasus back, but who stole it? Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Yesterday morning, 114 migrants arrived by boat onto a beach at RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus. Today, they're being bussed out. I'm joined by Guardian journalist Mike Theodoulou, who's in the Cypriot capital, Nicosia, as well as our BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee in the studio here. Uh, Mike, first to you. Let's talk about the refugees. Is it a Cypriot problem, not one for the SBAs? It is mainly an SBA, or rather British problem, rather than a Cypriot one. The Cypriots came to an agreement with the SBAs in 2003, whereby any uh, asylum seekers arriving on the SBAs through Cypriot territory, the Cypriots would take responsibility for. However, any refugees, asylum seekers arriving directly onto the SBAs, as in this case, uh, the, the primary responsibility would be with the British authorities, but in the agreement, Cyprus could, in a sense, take them off their hands, give them uh, some place to stay off the base and uh, provide food and benefits uh, with Britain footing the bill. Uh, the problem, I, I, I believe that they will leave the base and go to a temporary refugee centre near Nicosia, um, and there have been very detailed discussions going on for quite a long time now between the Cypriot and British authorities. I think where the sticking points will be is what happens after they come here to Cyprus, because uh, a lot of the a lot of the people won't want to. It's difficult uh, once they're in Cyprus then to leave. A lot of them seem to want to go on to Germany. And uh, since 2011, more than 2,000 Syrians have arrived in Cyprus. Just 10 have been granted official refugee status um, and several hundred more were given temporary protection rights uh, but th this is limited, the rest waiting for decisions on their status. So the, uh, the, the people who arrived yesterday won't really want to stay here, the British bases won't want them there and the Cypriots will only take in them in temporarily on uncertain conditions hoping it's a, uh, a short-lived uh, situation. But I must say that uh, in 1998, and I covered the story at the time, uh, some 75 migrants washed up on RAF Akrotiri under similar circumstances, and uh, about 20 of those still remain at the other base, Decalia, 17 years on. Yes, and it... Britain, Britain is entitled to find another country to take them in, because some of them do have official refugee status. No country has been willing to do so. They all say to Britain... But look, they arrived from British sovereign territory. Why don't you take them? A tricky problem. You're referring there to the Richmond camp refugees, which has been ongoing, yes. as you say, since 98 now. Um, let's turn to Christopher Lee. Let's talk about the security here, because there's a massive operation out of Akrotiri at the moment, uh, flying raids into Iraq. This appears pretty lax when these four boats weren't spotted by the Akrotiri security patrols, but were spotted by some Cypriot fishermen. What does it say about RAF Akrotiri, Christopher? Considering the operational status of the, of the base at the moment, considering the security level, 
at the base at the moment, um, you would think that the RAF security would have something to answer. Um, if, as you're suggesting, for example, um, I don't know, a rib turned up, found these guys splashing around, that's okay. It means you've spotted them, you're, you, you've got them under, under control. But when they're actually sort of paddling ashore and you still don't know, um, then that presents a different problem altogether. It's, it's, it's one for the security commander to answer and uh, be very difficult when you've got all the televisual evidence uh, that they were, they, they were arriving that way. Difficult and tricky. Just briefly, Mike, on this one, is this part of the problem with the way the SBAs are set up? You have the civil authorities, the SBA police and so on and so forth, and also the military. Can there be a disconnect between the two? Well, they do have pretty tight security all around, particularly around the fenced off military area of these two bases. But they are sprawling area of 98 square miles, the two bases uh, combined. Now, what you do have is public roads, say, going through these bases. I can drive through. I can stop off at any time. There's even a restaurant I can go to within the bases, not on the military fenced off thing, but I can go to a restaurant, say, at Decalia, which is uh, frequented by British service uh, men and their families and I could be anyone quite frankly it's a very hard thing to shut down and similarly where these refugees arrived yesterday is a public beach within the SBA territory so anyone basically could sort of wander ashore there um, and then they would have to be uh, uh, spotted if they look a bit dodgy uh, the bases do have a lot of eyes and ears normal servicemen and their families out and about if they see anything suspicious they immediately uh, alert the, the police as as in this case uh, the bases they get very touchy at this being described as a security breach yesterday they insist that it wasn't that those on board were immediately met upon reaching the shore they say no operations were compromised and at no point were military assets or our personnel at risk. However, they did put the base criteria into a lockdown for two hours after they arrived uh, as they tried to find out who these people were, where they came from, what their intentions were. Mike Theodoulou from Nicosia, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, Christopher, let's turn away from Cyprus and, and head back to the root cause of a lot of these refugee migrant problems, which is the conflict in Syria, of course. And this week we saw President Bashar al-Assad uh, flying to Moscow for a meeting with Putin. And that's significant. He's not been out of the country for an awfully long time, but now he's flying to Moscow. Yeah, well, he's, he, he's out of the country the first time uh, since this thing started about four and a half years ago. Flew to Moscow. Uh, the PR handout was he flew to thank um, President Putin for his help and uh, and the cooperation he's, that he's had. There's more to it than that, isn't there? It would be surprising if they weren't also discussing where do we go from here mm. uh, and who did we go with, because it now seems that uh, that Mr. Putin's people, firmly in charge of the military operation, uh, which brings on board for example, the Iranians, but most important, uh, it brings on the Kurds, and Kurds are now on side with the Putin-Assad, uh, if you like, the Tehran uh, uh, group. That is going to get right up the frocks of the Americans, because mm. the Americans say, listen, we, we, we control the Kurds, and that's it's not a big deal, but it's yet another example where in, sensitive, in, a, in a, sen a sensitive area, you've got the Americans saying, listen, that is not the way to do the job that we're trying to do. But they don't appear to have the teeth to be able to do the job they're trying to do. And with that alliance you mentioned there, Christopher, that's a strong alliance. And with Assad as the, I guess you could call him, 
if perhaps it goes the way Putin's thinking here, he's got a sad in position still, he's still got his base there, and he's got an awful lot more influence in that sphere. That's exactly what Putin would have wanted, could he have predicted this all those years ago. It's exactly what he wanted. Is also two of his particular commanders who were doing uh, who were doing the briefing job on him just three weeks ago uh, were saying that we will have to extend what we have in the area, um, and this it suggests two or three things. I mean, one is you need more force protection mm. uh, if you're putting in, for, for example, further aircraft and therefore planning operations. But you've got to make sure that you do them in the way that the Russians want, and, and Assad is the only person that can make that happen. OK, let's move on to China. And the country is set to invest £6 billion in a new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point in Somerset. The deal was uh, signed during this presidential visit, state visit we've seen in Britain this week by the president of China. Um, good for the banks, but some have some security reservations about this. Let's talk to Professor Lawrence Saiz from the Department of Politics at SOAS. That's the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, First of all, Professor, why is there suspicion that China is a potential threat to European security? OK, we're having problems with the line there. I'll put that same question to you, Christopher Lee. Uh, what is the suspicion here about China and its security threat? Is it to do with what we're seeing in the cyberspace sphere here, that they are not able to protect their infrastructure as well as perhaps we might want. Yeah, it's not, it's not theoretical either. Mm. It's not a theory here. Um, the Chinese uh, People's Republican Army uh, has something called Unit 61398, 61398, and this is a dedicated uh, cyber unit. It, it's not simple hacking. It monitors. It monitors everything that it can get its uh, get a signal into. And there's been a lot of suggestions that, for example, in an extreme case, that if you're in cooperation building something, involved with something, that you have, might have an opportunity to put in what's called a trapdoor. And so let's say this is really the extreme case. It's almost Jane Bondish stuff. <laughs> but what do you do is this. At a time of uh, transition to war, transition to sort of Cold War, or anything you like to call it, uh, you can operate a trapdoor, you can, you can, and you could, for example, send uh, a nuclear power station into a, into a meltdown. Mm, mm. Now, this is, as I say, uh, not trying to exaggerate it, but it's, that's where it starts and it works down. But from daily operational details, Chinese have all the details they need uh, being involved with it. But it's also who else has it, and that, yeah. is, and that is the example. OK, uh, let's, let's cross back now to Professor Lawrence Saiz, who's uh, on the line now. Uh, Lawrence, why this suspicion about China in terms of this particular deal, and more broadly in terms of uh, Europe European security here? Well, generally, I think that, that there's a question about what, what exactly the Chinese want to do strategically in, in some parts of the world, and so that translates into, you could call it kind of general paranoia about what their intentions would be uh, elsewhere. So they're, they're quite active in the South China Sea uh, and, and very aggressive at that. At that, at that. Uh, and so then people, I think, recently have the expectation that, that some form of um, strategic linkage will be made to, to other parts of the world, including Europe. Um, we talk about cyber nuclear power security and, and so forth, and, and you mentioned there the other ways China is developing. How have, what have you made of, of this visit here uh, by the President at the moment, the tone that's been expressed by Britain towards them? 
Well, I think it's, it's, it's actually well, it's a positive for Britain. I think Britain has to, to engage with, with uh, uh, an emerging superpower. I think that is, is a very uh, positive step. I think that the Chinese also have, uh, unlike previous visits, uh, have had um, a lot more you know, public relations uh, concerns in terms of trying to, to sidestep some issues uh, deliberately from the beginning. And I think that's a, a positive for, for Britain. Uh, but in the long term, there will be issues in which um, uh, the Chinese, uh, European partners, Britain, and, and the U.S. will not see eye to eye, specifically as they start being more proactive in, in military engagements uh, in other parts of the world. They, they have been so far very, very inactive uh, in, in such involvements, except in the South China mm-hmm. Sea. Uh, but there is a concern that that would be um, that would that would be translated into, into say, for instance, involvement in the Middle East. So future military coming together could be a, a massive problem for the future here, you're saying? Well, there, there's a, I mean, right now, for instance, we have a situation in Syria in which uh, Russia is, is uh, acting in, in, unilaterally, for instance, yeah. uh, to protect its interests. And so I don't see why not be the case for China in the future to start getting involved. And uh, as it's becoming more economically involved and intertangled with other parts of the world, that China would actually try to do the same. Uh, acting unilaterally, sending troops and, and so on, against perhaps what, what Europeans or the US would consider to be its own interests. Okay, Professor, thanks very much for joining us. Quickly back on this, Christopher. Yeah, don't, let's not forget that China isn't coming, isn't turned up to do a load of um, uh, cyber activity that it wouldn't be doing normally. It's making a big investment. It wants a big return. Yeah. And don't forget, China is already a big investor in the United Kingdom. Oh, for goodness sake, it actually makes black caps for London taxi service. And it owns 10% of Heathrow where the President flew into. Still to come, tin rattlers on the Poppy Day front line and Pegasus returns to the Parachute Regiment. Right, it's United Nations Day this Saturday. This one's a bit special. as it marks the 70th anniversary of the ratification of the UN Charter. That's the document that brought the United Nations into being. Ambassador Peter Wilson is Deputy Permanent Representative at the UK Mission to the UN and joins us now from New York. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. Now, the UK, U, UN, I should say, has always been accused of not being able to, the job, to do the job it took over from the old League of Nations, for example, preventing wars from starting and stopping them when they did. Is that a fair assessment? I think the the United Nations is very, very different from the League of Nations. I think the first big success of the United Nations, and it's hard to measure this, um, is the fact that there has been no world war since the UN was set up. Um, With the League of Nations, countries were starting to leave the League of Nations before the Second World War. In the United Nations, we started with 51 countries. We're now a universal organization of 193 countries. So I think it's hard to measure things that don't happen. But if you look at the world today, less people die in conflict now than have died in any single year since the Second World War. Well, that that sounds like a fair enough answer to me on that one. Um, Is the true strength of the organisation not just what it represents in the United Nations and and all that behind it, but the the agencies that have been set up? Now, they were dramatically new. The League of Nations didn't have them. I'm talking about UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, the UN Human Rights Council, and now work on climate change. 
Well, the agencies are a fantastic part of the UN, and I'm really glad that you're talking about them because sometimes we don't talk about them enough. Um, you've mentioned three great ones. There's also UNICEF, which helps children across the world, which is a really successful agency. But I think it's a combination of both. I think, first of all, you've got a universal organization that really does represent almost every country in the world. Second, you've got these very, very dynamic agencies doing anything from bringing food to countries in a famine to helping 70 million refugees around the world uh, to doing innovative things on vaccinations and preventing AIDS. So the UN is a vast panoply of different organizations, over 50,000 people around the world, many of whom are doing work that is unsung. So thanks for mentioning them. <laughs> Not a problem. Happy to do so. Um, what is wrong with the UN, though? We've talked about some of the greatest things it does, but you're right there. You're working in the organization. There must be things we could perhaps reinvigorate, not reinvent, but reformulate for this modern world set after 70 years? No, that's definitely true. And I think one thing that's really important to say about the UN, having said what an amazing institution it is and what amazing agencies it's got, is also to recognise some of its shortcomings. And we are absolutely not complacent about that sitting here in New York. I mean, the first thing is we work very, very hard to make the UN as efficient as possible. I have to be honest, I do not think that the UN is as efficient as it can be, but it's tough negotiating that when you're talking to 192 other countries who may have different priorities from you. I think the second thing is um, we focus quite a lot, and actually the agencies focus quite, on quite a lot on delivery, but one of the things the UN can do, because it's a universal organisation, is really set the norms for international behaviour. And I think in the years ahead, um, as you look at other innovative ways to deliver aid and to deliver assistance to people in need, including through civil society and non-governmental organisations, is to look to the UN to coordinate and to set international norms. And I think, if you like, that for me would be a key focus on the development side for the coming 20 years. And then on peace and security, I mean, yes, it's true that we have prevented a third world war so far, but it's also true that there are conflicts where we have to do more. And the problem with that is, I can tell you what I think the solution to a particular crisis is. The tough part is getting agreement amongst 15 members of the Security Council, five of whom have a veto. And we are very proud of the fact that the United Kingdom has not exercised our veto since 1989. If we did have to exercise our veto, it would be a sign of failure, because it would mean that we had not convinced at least nine other members of the Security Council that we were right. So I think those countries that are exercising their veto to prevent us taking action on issues that really matter to people around the world need to think very, very carefully about what they're doing. Christopher Lee, our BFBS defence analyst, is here, Ambassador. He's got a, a question for you. Well, it, it always strikes me that um, when people say if we didn't have a United Nations, we'd have to invent it, and we'd probably just reinvent the United Nations. The important thing, isn't it, Ambassador, that the United Nations is the sum of its 193 parts and I suspect in the corridors and margins that that's when a lot of the real work is done. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, to be honest, if you look at some of our big set-piece meetings, they can sound quite formulaic. And sometimes when I'm showing people around the United Nations, I ask them to look at what's going on even in the back of the, even in the, back of the open room. The truth is what we're trying to do is make deals so that we can achieve agreement. And there's nothing dishonourable about that. We need to be able to cut deals at the UN in order to forge a common way ahead. Otherwise, we will get blocked. 
So a lot of activity goes on in the corridors um, and a lot of, of, of deal making needs to happen in order for countries to agree on a way forward. One great example of this is the Sustainable Development Goals, where we basically agreed amongst all of these countries of the UN on a development path for the next 15 years. I think that could be transformatory and I think that's a real success of multilateral diplomacy. Ambassador Peter Wilson, thank you very much for joining us. I, I love the way you speak so enthusiastically about the work you're doing out there. It's a, it's a real breath of fresh air, so thank you very much indeed for joining us from New York. Thank you, and I do love what I do. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Thank you very much. Christopher, let's uh, look at some of the stories in brief that have been making the news this week. Uh, Canada, first of all. The Prime Minister says he's going to take out the Canadian fighter jets from above Iraq and Syria. Why is this? It's not just this, this is not just the Prime Minister. This mm. is the son of the great Pierre Trudeau. Um, the great liberal, and he's more liberal than his father. Uh, the well-tattooed new prime minister, one of his first jobs, he rang up President Obama and said, by the way, the Canadian squadron, they're out. Mm. Uh, we'll leave the others in, they're out. Now, what are the others, actually? They've got a very good training squadron there of uh, what we would call uh, Canadian SAS. Mm -hmm. So they haven't pulled out altogether. But he is a liberal, a very, very much a liberal, and watch Canada, because they do make an important contribution to NATO. They may want to make a different contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go to Afghanistan. Lashkar, a place I spent uh, many, many uh, weeks, days, I should say, not weeks. I'm exaggerating again. I'm prone to that. But I spent many days there looking at the work the British were doing, bringing stability. Reports now the Taliban is close to Lashkar. Could it take over? Well, it was always going to, wasn't it? It could always take over, but the answer, the real answer to this, can the Afghan army, can it, with the support it would have with the remaining, especially the American uh, troops, plus, importantly, air power, can it deter this? And once they've got it, can they keep it? And that's the next stage to look for, is, is whether they're in such a formation that they could hang on to mm. whatever they capture. Worrying times. OK, let's uh, move on now. And today sees the 2015 launch of the Poppy Appeal. No matter how big the event to most of us, Poppy Day is about the people rattling the tins in the stations, the high streets, the pubs. Adam Brown, well, he's one of those. He's a community fundraiser for the Royal British Legion down in Somerset. Adam, welcome to Sit Rep. Hello, thank you. Hello there. Now, the tin rattler, I know you're not allowed to rattle tins, yeah, the charity commission won't let you do that, but it's a handy way of saying it, isn't it? But you're really at the front line, uh, and also the public image for Poppy Day. Why do you do it, though? Uh, well, me personally, uh, I'm more of, because I work for the Legion, I, I'm more of a support to all the guys on the ground, all the volunteers. I mean, there's 126 Poppy Appeal organisers throughout the county, of Somerset, and they've all got their own smaller teams of volunteers underneath them, and they're the, they're the ones who do all the work, really. Now, you're an ex-forces chap yourself. I guess that's where your interest for the Royal British Legion and all they represent was fostered. Yeah, I, I spent 14 years in the Royal Green Jackets um, in uh, all, all three battalions over my period of time, but one of, one of the reasons I'm very, very passionate about the work that Legion done is I'm actually a beneficiary myself. I've been helped out by the Legion. Oh, well, you know the true value of it. But let's talk about... I'm really interested in the organisation and all of this. So basic stuff like where, where do you guys and girls go to get their poppies, their pins, their tins and so forth? How does that work? Right, well, basically what we've got is the Royal British Legion Village, which is in Aylesford in Kent. Uh, that's where the main warehouse is and the majority of all the... Well, in fact, all the poppy stock comes from. What kind of happens, because most people think the poppy appeal is just two weeks of the year, uh, in... May, June time, Aylesford will send out to all the Poppy Appeal organisers their packs for the year with their new order forms. 
Um, and we've also just gone on to a new online ordering system, which is very, very sort of similar to uh, shopping online with Amazon. Uh, <laughs> okay. And then from, from June, they can then start ordering all their poppies, their pins, their wristbands and stuff. And it will get delivered whenever they choose. Uh, and then they start putting things together. I mean, I've been to visit the Poppy Appeal organiser in Taunton this morning, um, and they're just finalising the few things, getting the last few boxes out and pots out, etc. Now let's talk about, you know, this is <laughs> real sort of fun stuff, but also really interesting. You've got your tin, we've all seen them, we've all put money in them, but how much do you, could you roughly expect to get out of each of, and every one of those uh, collection tins? And, and how many would you, your team expect to fill between now and the 11th of November? Uh, well, I think the best thing I can probably do is because... Um, where I look after Somerset, Somerset's a bit of a, an extreme area sort of thing because <laughs> I have villages where they might take out five pots and go door-to-door collecting uh, to cities like Bath, and Bath puts out 794 collection pots uh, throughout for the whole two-week period. Your average collecting box could have anything from 17 pence in up to 300, £320. Pounds. Christopher, Christopher Lee. Can I just tell you, uh, it's, it's an aside from all this, the, the, the poppies come from Aylesford in Kent. Um, mm. um, it is also the headquarters, right next to the poppies, of the Carmelite Friars. Okay. And Wasn't the, expecting that. No. <laughs> um, and the Carmelite Friars in the 14th century were the first people to organise to help returning servicemen, i.e. the Crusaders. Really? That's interesting, isn't it? Oh, that's, it's good well, to see. We try. Oh, you, you do try. Well done. Um, Adam, I mean, yes. you must always be totally overwhelmed by the, the, the dedication of your, your people there. Oh, t- yeah, very, very much so. I mean, my, um, again, one of my other volunteers um, in, in the county, I know for a fact that every year she saves, saves two weeks of her holiday to take time off to make sure all the pots and pots are taken out and to collect and she also takes off two weeks unpaid work to cover the whole poppy appeal period and, and the dedication that some of the guys put out is, is just unbelievable it's mind-boggling sometimes how much work they put into the poppy appeal it really is adam brown very best of luck this year and thank you so much for joining us from somerset here on sitrep thank you Right, Christopher, let's uh, turn our attention to some of the other stories in brief this week. And, well, I say in brief, but this is a huge and major story that's uh, developing uh, because of this exercise that's taking place, Exercise Trident Juncture. We know there are all sorts of exercises that go on within the NATO framework, but this one is the important one. Tell us why. I think it's the important one because it, it does two, two particular things. It's, it's, let's say, uh, put it in some context, how big it is. 140 aircraft, mm. uh, 60 vessels or more than 60 vessels, 36,000 uh, personnel taking part, 30 countries. It is how you react to a crisis, maybe that transition to conflict, maybe not, but it's how you react. And then, then comes how do you bring... 140 aircraft, 60 Mm. vessels, 36,000 people, and 30 countries. How do you bring them together with different operating systems, uh, etc.? That is the importance of this. It's taken two years to organise. I don't think we've seen an exercise organised like this, which is down in the Mediterranean, run from Italy. I don't think we've seen an an exercise like this for certainly, certainly 10 years. Ocean is there, HMS Ocean. Um, stacked up with people, 45 Commando Army Air Corps, mm. shows it's quite a, quite a, a, a mixture of people. 
We'll be reporting really fully on this as it develops. Uh, and, and the fascinating part of it, I mean, it's not about would this be a scenario, it's about the interoperability and nations connecting with each other, which can be deployed in, in any way in the future. But I want to just uh, finish up today with a very nice story about the Parachute Regiment. And uh, Pegasus, as we know, is a flying horse. He's also their Shetland Pony mascot up there in uh, Colchester. But until 1999, the Pegasus symbol was worn by the paratroopers, then it was done away with, but now it's back. It is back 15 years ago, yeah. uh, when after a, after a defence review, um, then the operational command went to sort of helicopter command, and they said, oh, no, we have to have a different, different badge, and we're going to have an eagle. We imagine being in the Paris, we're going to have an eagle when we've actually got Pegasus. And we've had Pegasus for a long time since the Second World War. And it was the idea of uh, 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 de Maurier, who, who Daphne said... De Maurier, Daphne de Maurier. Daphne de Maurier, whose husband, Boy Browning, General Boy Browning, was commanding Airborne. They've got it back. But the reason they lost it in the first place, I reckon, was nastiness somewhere in the whole service system. Someone was jealous, you think? They, well, you know, the Paris, Paris are pretty good. And they sort of go around showing people that they are pretty good. <laughs> and a lot of people uh, said, no, 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 we're not going to have this. But the important thing about this Pegasus going back on the 25th, 25th of November, it will be made quite clearly at the ceremonies when it's handed back, um, that is for everybody who takes part in the airborne operation. Originally, it was people mm. that jumped out of aeroplanes from gliders. The gliders were involved. Now the helicopters will be involved. Ground troops will be involved who are part of it. Pegasus is back. And uh, the difference is that uh, it's got a got a, an archer on its back where Shetland ponies don't. They really don't. Just not, people not for long, the, anyway. Just people from the, uh, <laughs> the puppy club or whatever it's got. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Christopher. It all, of course, relates to Pegasus Bridge, all of that linked in. Great to see that back. Thanks for all the guests on SITREP this week. Uh, Paula Middlehurst is here next week, but from me, Tim Cooper, and the team, thanks for listening. And from us all at BFBS SITREP, until next time, bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio